0: There are many, many ways of talking about what we mean when we confess that Christ died for our sins that do not necessitate us uh, moving down the false path that God was angry and punitive and had to be satisfied like you know some pagan deity, so you have to throw a virgin in a volcano or something like sure, that. Sure, uh, That's not—I I had someone tell me not too long ago, I can't be a Christian because I don't believe in child sacrifice. And so I I had to explain to them, yeah, I don't believe in it either. And I don't believe that's what we're seeing at the cross. To put it as bluntly as I can, God didn't kill Jesus.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode... Number thirty-five, and I gotta tell you, uh, you have picked—you have picked the right day to drop by. Uh, we're in the middle of a, a series for Lent, and we're calling it "God's Not Mad," where I'm basically rereading through um, a book by Brian Zond called "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God," and uh, I've said this before. Um, in a couple of previous episodes, but the book is such an easy read, but it is so rich with such good content about the love of God, uh, like the grace of God, um, you know, God's radical inclusion, all this stuff. And it's just blowing my mind. Uh, every paragraph just creates this spider web of ideas in my brain, and I'm just loving every minute of it. So I'm using uh, these episodes to... Uh, just kind of flesh out some of those ideas. Uh, but today, uh, today in today's episode, I actually sat down with Brian Zond and got to pick his brain about the book. Now, I'll say to you up front, um, I asked him purposely uh, some questions that I knew were his like passion points, uh, stuff that I knew would really get him talking. And I've listened to a couple of his sermons before, and uh, he pastors a church and stuff, and I've listened. I mean, he is just mind-blowing with some of the stuff that he shares. And so I asked him some questions that I knew would really uh, get him going. And you're going to notice I didn't say very much at all in this episode. I kind of just asked a question a couple times. I tried to ask a follow-up question. He just kind of motored right over me, which was fine, because I wanted him to share uh, the things that God had been putting on his heart. And so Uh, We talk about the cross, we talk about hell, we talk about the atonement, we talk about so many different things, and um, I came away from this episode feeling so loved and so cared for by God, and uh, I'm really excited for you uh, to tune in to this. Uh, A couple things before we go into that. Uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject. You can find the What If Project there. Uh, There are a few different tiers uh, that you are able to support on. Uh, The beginning one is $3, all the way up to $30. You can also customize whatever amount you might want to give a month. Uh, Any money that comes in for the project uh, is going into a a cyber bucket of sorts uh, to pay for the hosting fees for the website, for the podcast, and then to eventually buy me a new mic. I'm using uh, not even my own mic. I'm using a a blue mic, I guess it's called, from one of my friends, and I have to give it back to him eventually. Let me borrow it for a while now. Uh, but it kind of moves and kind of swivels around. And I have to kind of make my head follow it when it's moving. And that's just kind of weird. So eventually, I'd like to get a new mic that I can get like a boom. And I can sit here and I don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff. So the money will go to those things. So if you're able to support, you want to support, you want to go check it out. Uh, Patreon.com slash what if project. Uh, special music today is from my friend, my very good friend. Um, who heads up a, a band of sorts called Before Jane. And uh, you can find him on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, all the different places where you listen to cool music. You find him on Twitter, um, all over the place. So go find his music, go listen to his music, download his music, support his music. Uh, he is a great guy, a caring guy a loving guy who's making a big difference in his part of the world and uh, there are big things on the horizon for this guy, so uh, go check him out download the music, you will not be sorry, but for now uh, this is episode number 35 and uh, part 4 of the God's Not Mad series uh, my chat with Brian Zond Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today, I'm joined by pastor, author, theologian, uh, Brian Zond. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Glenn. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, Brian, I first heard about you, uh, let's see, it was probably about two years ago. And uh, since you've been around a lot longer than that, I feel like I've been missing out (laughs) quite a bit. Uh Uh, But I was taking a class at Alliance Theological Seminary uh, about the intersection of Culture and church ministry, and the professor mentioned your book uh, Water to Wine, and so uh, mm-hmm. I did a quick Google search when I probably should have been taking notes with the lecture. But I also came across your book uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which we're going to chat about a little bit today. And uh, that book, I just finished reading it last week, and I've been talking to my wife about it like nonstop. But it really, I think it really like scratched an itch for me that I've been trying to scratch for a long. Long time. Just answered a lot of different questions for me, and uh, I think it's a book that everybody everybody needs to read. So thank you for pouring your time into that book.
2: Thank you.
0: Yesterday, I uh, I uh, spent three hours with a group of nine Baptist pastors, all who had read "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God," and um, they. Eamon wanted to, you know, dialogue with me further on it. Hmm. They came from the Kansas City area and all of them loved it. So the idea that people that are solidly evangelical might not or might automatically uh, not like sinners in the hands of loving God. Well, I found that that's not the case. Every every single one of them loved the book. Hmm. And uh, so I, I found that encouraging, interesting.
1: Yeah, I feel, I feel like the book brings up a lot of um, helpful points that people might not typically think of, but brings them up in a very non-threatening way. I think mm-hmm. that's the, the key to the book. I think uh, that's, the way, that's what I took away anyway. Um, but before we jump into that, maybe for those uh, of our listeners who aren't super familiar with you, uh, maybe you could just take a few moments to introduce yourself. You know, who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? I think you have a new book that just dropped, so maybe you want to talk about that.
0: Yeah, well, I have been the pastor of one church for thirty-seven years. Mm. Uh, I started that's almost, when I was that's unheard of today. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm um, you know I'm fifty-nine, and I've done one thing my adult life.
2: Mm.
0: Really, really, I, the, our church, Word of Life Church, here in Saint Joseph, Missouri, north of Kansas City, um, it grew out of I. Jesus movement coffee house ministry known as the catacombs and that I was leading when I was 17. (laughs) Wow. And then it, it basically turned into our church. Hmm. So really I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. (laughs) Hmm. And I don't recommend that that's not a model (laughs) to emulate, but it's what happened. And so I've been a pastor a very long time. Um, I do tell quite a bit of my story in the book you mentioned water to wine, and that was you know midlife around age forty five I just thought, man, the Jesus that so fascinates me deserves a better Christianity than what I'm seeing, yeah, and it caused me to go on a, a very wonderful and simultaneously painful journey in that what I did was transition our church out of what. I don't know, you could call it Americanized pop Christianity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sometimes I just call it easy cheesy cotton candy Christianity. <laughs> sure. Uh, into something more rich, substantive, rooted in the great tradition. Uh, and out of that, we we became much better, a much better church, but we lost a thousand people doing that. Wow. And that was very painful. Uh, I, I can tell our listeners that The pain has subsided and and we're in a very, very good place. My wife and I and our church and our leadership team, it's all all just really very wonderful right now. But that transition was not easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've written seven books in the past 10 years. Uh, One of them that would be very much related to Word of Life, losing a thousand members was the book, A Farewell to Mars, which... It examines uh, Christian participation in war. Is that consistent with what we receive from the teachings of Jesus? There's that book, and then the book I mentioned, I won't mention them all, but then there's The Water to Wine, which is something of a memoir that tells that story. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of the Loving God that we're going to talk about. And just last month, Postcards from Babylon, the Church in American Exile came out. So that's
1: my most recent. That's fitting for our times, for sure.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's the most, again, we're not here to talk about that book, but yeah. it's, it's, that book is, there's an urgency to that book. Hmm. My other books, you know, can, I could have written whenever. This one, I just had to write it now. It's, it's for this moment. It's addressing the crisis of fidelity that we see in the American church. Yeah. Where, where the church is very much tempted to um, betray our Lord through religious nationalism.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'll just leave it at that. But that's what that book's about. Gotcha. So I think it's interesting you said about how you, you kind of went through this process of rethinking, you know, your theology, understanding of God, whatever we want to call it, but yourself, but also while pastoring your church. Was that a, was that a difficult?
0: I think, I think that's part of what makes the story interesting. I yeah. mean, Water to Wine has been a very popular book. And I think, I mean, a lot of people go on these journeys, you know, Mm. I call it, I mean, some people talk about it, about deconstruction. That's not my preferred metaphor. It's a little too violent for me. Sure. I I like the metaphor water to wine, but, Mm. uh, you know, a lot of people do this. Not everyone does it as a relatively high profile public figure and pastor. Mm. And and uh, successfully pull it off. I mean, again, yes, we lost a thousand people, but we actually did bring our church into a much better place. And, and uh, so I think that's part of what makes the story a little bit unique. Yeah, that's why I pastors probably every day, in one way or another, pastors will reach out to me and say, you know, I'm I'm trying, but I'm finding it hard. And so
1: mm. yeah, for people in that position, do you recommend that they? At least work through some of their own things first before kind of presenting it to the church. Or is yes. it?
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can't work too close to your immediate. You know, transformation, transition, change. Uh, you need to own it for a while and uh, walk in those new shoes until they're broke in. So that you can, in a more relaxed, comfortable, non-threatening way, help lead others into it. This might have been one of the mistakes. If I have, if I look back on that whole period of transition, uh, basically, I, I don't think I could have done much differently than I did. Other than maybe around 2006, I was, I was so excited about what I was discovering that I, I couldn't hardly resist the temptation to immediately share it. Mm. Maybe it would have been easier if I had been a little
1: slower about that, but sure. yeah uh, thank you for sharing that part of your story. Um, as you know, this is the the What if project, and one of the things that we do here is kind of explore the question of what if there are ways of understanding uh, God and the Bible and, and faith that are maybe a little bit different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us, and typically, you know our North American, uh, even more evangelical traditions. Uh, but Mm -hmm. now for me and for many of our listeners, uh, tradition has kind of handed us this idea that, you know, God is God is really ticked off and Mm -hmm. he's essentially pacing the cosmos and he's wringing his hands and he's ticked off at me and humanity and ticked off at sin. And, you know, because God is holy and perfect, this sin needs to be punished and his anger has to be appeased. So therefore you know, as we know, Jesus became our substitute as, as it goes. And so, you know, God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. And um, so it wouldn't have to be poured out on me if I would accept him as my Lord and my savior. So before we get into some of the kind of specific questions around that thinking, uh, I'm wondering like throughout your own life and your ministry, have you found this or at least something close to it to be pretty common understanding of God? Or is this like more of a North American thing? Is it all over the world? Is it isolated more in one part of the world, or? I you know what's your what's your finding with that.
0: Well, I I think the tendency to project our own anger, our own displeasure, our own shame onto the idea of how we understand and imagine God is very human.
2: Hmm.
0: W- without some sort of assistance that may be the default position that people hmm. are going to project onto God their own fear their own anger, their own sense of shame. Mm. That being said, uh, in America, we are all Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> Even the atheists are Puritans in America. By that, I mean the, athe- the God that the American atheist doesn't believe in is the Puritan God. Mm. So we have this Puritan legacy um that and it you know it doesn't really matter whether you like it or not that's the case that's that's the default mode for many many i would say most americans it's mm. just in our dna it's in our american soul that we have a very puritan influenced idea of god and this would be uh, a particularly egregious example of those operating under the assumption that God is angry and God must be in some way uh, pacified mm. and that as the theory goes, God could not forgive without punishing, which we should be even more forthright and say it this way, God could not forgive without killing somebody. Mm. And uh, that doctrine though is, is new. Mm. I mean, it's relatively modern that way of thinking. It never infected the East You know, we understand that the church in the West, people will talk about it being divided between Catholic and Protestant. That's true enough. But
2: Mm.
0: there's also the division between East and West so that you have uh, Catholics and Protestants in the West share much in common. That would be very different in the Orthodox East. Mm -hmm. The Orthodox East never went down that kind of path. I don't know that we want to take all the time to unpack it all, but it begins with Anselm about a thousand years ago and then comes into basically the form that we understand it today through John Calvin. Hmm. And that is that God could not forgive unless he punished. So um, I'll often hear people say, well, you know, God can't forgive. He's got to satisfy justice. And that's a very problematic statement. There's a lot of assumption going on there. I don't even know where to start. I say, well, okay, so God can't forgive without satisfying justice. Hmm. Who's in charge here? So is God, is God a penultimate God? Is the God that you are referring beholden to a superior God or, or, or ideal or law? I don't understand this. And then there's so much assumption going on that justice must be retributive. And not only retributive, but violently retributive. That's the assumption behind that. I think all of that is false. And it's not what we see uh, in Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus Christ so that God can forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Hmm. So uh, Jesus on the cross is not saving us from God. That would, that would, um, that is a, that is libel upon the character that the God, that that Jesus called Abba. And it also disrupts the uh, Trinity. So no, Jesus isn't saving us from God. Jesus is revealing God as savior. Mm -hmm. So that when Christ upon the cross says, father, forgive them for they know not what they do, uh, Well, this is another example of Jesus only saying, only doing what the Father does. He's revealing the Father to us Mm -hmm. so that one might then imagine the Father saying, of course, that's who we are. That's Mm -hmm. what we do. So I understand the cross in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's ways in which the cross shames the principalities and powers. The cross becomes the way by which Christ enters into death, Mm -hmm. that he might destroy death from the inside out. As the great Orthodox Paschal hymn says, Christ has triumphed over death, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, another way of thinking about the cross is the cross is the moment where all of the sin of the world coalesces into a singularity that is violently sinned into the body of Jesus. And in that moment of sin coalescing into a singularity, sin into Jesus, Jesus responds to it by speaking words of forgiveness. So the cross becomes the place where the sin of the world in mass is forgiven. And I might even say it, say more, I might say it's the place where the sin of the world is absorbed into the into the flesh of Jesus Christ, who takes it down into death, leaves sin and guilt there and is raised on the third day and comes back speaking the first word of the new world. Peace be with you. Hmm. Uh, there are many, many ways of talking about what we mean when we confess that Christ died for our sins that do not necessitate us uh, moving down the false path that God was angry and punitive and had to be satisfied like you know some pagan deity, so you have to throw a virgin in a volcano or something like that. Sure. sure. Uh, that's not I, I had someone tell me not too long ago, I can't be a Christian because I don't believe in child sacrifice. Mm. And so I, I had to explain to them, yeah, I don't believe in it either. And I don't believe that's what we're seeing at the cross. To put it as bluntly as I can, God didn't kill Jesus. Mm. Our sinful structures killed Jesus. Now the father knew that it was inevitable. He, the father knew that it was inevitable if the Holy one came into the world, that eventually he would be in the cross heirs of the principalities and powers and be crucified. But you don't have to be God to know that. Plato 300 years before Christ understood that. And he speculated in his famous work, the Republic on what would happen if a entirely innocent, perfect, just man came among us and Plato Outright says, we would scourge him, we would put him in fetters, we would spit upon him, and then after all manner of suffering, we would crucify him. That's Plato, 300 years before Christ. So yes, uh, the Father knows that the innocent one entering into our world of sin is going to end up crucified. But it doesn't mean that that's the will of the father in order for him to forgive. Rather, it becomes the place where the sin of the world reaching this grotesque crescendo is the worst sin possible, right? I mean, the murder of God, deicide. And in that moment, that which is emblematic of the absolute pinnacle of human sin, the response of the father and son is forgive.
2: Yeah. Forgive.
0: Forgive. So, jesus died for us not for god <laughs> we could talk about that in all kinds of ways
1: but yeah yeah i think that's really good and i sometimes i think we get so stuck in seeing the crucifixion and the cross yeah. and good friday
0: i want our, I want our listeners to understand because i don't want our listeners to think oh this is just some new thing that brian's on cooked up sure you know, of understanding the cross um whether you agree with it or not, it is certainly not new. Again, mm. this is how our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox East have talked about the death of Christ for 2,000 years. Mm. In other words, the idea that God was punishing Jesus on our behalf at the cross is, and I'm going to use strong language. I don't use it like to use a stronger word, but my Orthodox theologian friends will say, For 2,000 years, any suggestion of that has been called heresy by the Orthodox Church. So even if you disagree with me, uh, don't charge me with inventing some sort of new modern novel doctrine. No, I'm really just saying what the Orthodox Church has said um, for 2,000 years. And and the idea that God was punishing Jesus on our behalf of the cross, that also is quite new. Hmm. I mean, relatively speaking, it's been around for 500 years, but it's no older than that.
1: Wow. Hmm. And we're 2000 years after Jesus's death. So that tells you something right now. Why is it that, you know, I know you talked about the Puritan legacy in America and things like that, but why is it that that kind of thinking, um, it's been around for so long, but it's like literally never talked about. I mean, I went through, uh, four years of Bible college, four years of seminary and a doctoral program. And like, I'm just starting to really hear about the depths of those kinds of things like well, why because is you don't it? talk about
0: what is assumed because mm. then you don't even know what you don't know yeah you know, the, the the chinese proverb you don't ask a fish about water mm. I mean, one of the problems and the the technical term for this is penal substitutionary atonement theory right yeah this word theory um I don't. I don't mind talking about Jesus as a substitute. I mean, He does recapitulate humanity, to use more orthodox language. Mm. He becomes the second Adam. He becomes the new beginning for the human race. In that sense, He's a substitute. Um, I don't mind the language of substitute. It's penal. That is punishment. That is retributive. If the idea is that God has to punish someone, that is kill someone, that is torture someone mm. um, before He can forgive. I. I just thoroughly reject that. Um, the reason we don't talk about it though, and this is one of the problems with well, we'll say PSA from now on cause it's easier to say. Sure. But one of the problems with PSA is that it eclipses all other meanings of the cross. It becomes the only thing that the cross is. And so, first of all, I think it's a false doctrine mm. and a false doctrine has eclipsed every other way of talking about the cross. So that in so many circles, um, uh, PSA equals the gospel. PSA is the only way of understanding the cross. Um, It's it's been so successful in being promoted for various reasons that even non-believers in the American context, that's how they understand the cross. And for many of them, it's a reason why they reject it. They said, any religion that worships a God that requires child sacrifice, count me out. Uh, And so... The reason some people might just now be, begin to see this is because we've just been immersed in it. Although I will say that over the last 20 years, uh, there's been almost a cottage industry of new books on atonement theory coming out. Hmm. And, uh, and I welcome them. So, hmm. um, N.T. Wright, you know, Anglican scholar, he will describe PSA in its, in its American form. In it's common, popular American form. He will call it repeatedly in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, one of his newest books, uh, paganized soteriology.
2: Hmm.
0: Let, let me impact that a little bit. Yeah, please Part do. of what's going on is um, we understand Jesus as a sacrifice. We understand that Jesus sacrificed his life, but we don't know anything about sacrifice. We are so far removed from the world of Hebrew sacrifice that our default mode and we'll probably pick it up from Hollywood as much as anywhere Uh, popular imagination is we have a pagan concept of sacrifice. That is that God is being appeased by some substitute being punished. Here's the key thing. When we have, let's take for example, the Passover lamb and Jesus is referred to as our Passover lamb in the new Testament. The Passover lamb was not being punished. The Passover lamb was providing the meal of reconciliation. It becomes the place where, first of all, it's it's a gift offered to God, and then it becomes the place of the shared meal of reconciliation. So in Exodus 14, with the Passover, you don't have Yahweh commanding the Israelites and yea, you shall take a, a lamb, a male of the first year, and you shall bring it into your house. And yea, you shall keep it under the 14th day of Nisan. And then at twilight, you shall begin to torture it. Hmm. And then you shall whip it. And then you shall scourge it. And then you shall spit upon it. And then you shall come come up with a little crown of thorns and stick it on this poor lamb's head. And then nail it to a tree until at long last it dies. No. The the point of the lamb is not that it's being punished. The point of the lamb is, is it's being offered to God and it becomes the place of the of the covenant meal. Mm. So what we've done is we've seen sacrifice in the Bible, but we have then loaded sacrifice with a pagan understanding of sacrifice because we're so far removed from a world of sacrifice. Mm. That's just, I mean, I can go on and on and on about yeah. this, but that's one example of how we get it wrong is that we, and we do something very similar with hell. Hell becomes, um, that gets loaded with meaning that is not intended, hmm. never was intended in the actual scriptural text. We read it into it. We assume. We read so it backwards. Sacrifice means punishing a vicarious victim.
2: Hmm. When
1: it, no, that's not what sacrifices is. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I never uh, looked at the Passover meal in that way. So that's definitely something I'm going to have to think about. Um, one of the things, obviously, the the premise of the book is that God isn't angry. And um, right. in chapter one, uh, you set it right out and you said, you know, God is not mad at you. God has never been mad at you. And God is never going to be mad at you. And I know you explore this a little bit in the book. And I was wondering if you could take it apart a little bit more here. Um, if God's not mad at me, uh, what is the deal with the fear of the Lord? Because constantly in the Bible, we're told that yeah. we need to fear God. We need to have a fear of God. And even in the church, you'll hear you have to have a healthy fear of God. So what's the deal with fearing God if God is never going to be yeah. mad?
0: Yeah, I, I believe that we should fear God provided we understand what that means. But let me back way up. So I, say, I say God isn't mm-hmm. mad at you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, can, I, I say, yes, amen, God is not mad. And I can, let me come at it two different angles let me come at it first from a theological angle Um, the church fathers were deeply committed to the doctrine of the impassibility of god which more or less means that god is not moved by emotion or more technically that god is never subject to change god is immutable god doesn't mutate He doesn't mutate over time and he doesn't mutate in, you know, in the moment. So uh, the church fathers would say, yeah, we have language about God being angry, particularly in the Old Testament. uh, But we also have language about God being asleep too. Mm. And we don't actually think it's interesting that anger is, is the metaphor that we tend to literalize. Mm. No one really makes the mistake of saying, you know, Uh, God literally sleeps, but we do believe that God literally becomes angry. The church fathers would consistently say no, because that is to impute the idea of change to God. Mm. On a more popular level, I would talk about it like this. I would say God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. And God's disposition toward you is one that is revealed in the love of Christ. Mm. Now, what about the fear of God? Well, the fear of God. See, there are con- sin is not without consequence. Sure. In fact, ultimately, I would say this: no one ever gets away with anything. In the long run, everything is punished, but not from a vindictive, retributive, angry, and violent God, but simply because God has arranged the universe in a certain bent of reality. Sure. That is, there is a grain to the universe. Uh, why is there something instead of nothing? Because God said, let there be. But why does God do that? I think the closest we can come to an answer is that God is love, yeah. seeking expression. God is love. And so all that exists, exists because God is love. And that adds a grain to the universe. If we learn to go with the grain of the universe by learning to love, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself, then it tends toward well-being. It tends toward human flourishing. But if we say, no, I don't want to love God. I don't want to love my neighbor. I want to live for myself. We find ourselves going against the grain of the universe and eventually suffering the shards of self-inflicted punishment. We can call this, if we like, we can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. Mm. But that's a metaphor. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from the book of the Psalms. In Psalm 7 the psalmist writes, God is a righteous judge. God sits in judgment every day. If they will not repent, God will wet his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has prepared his weapons of death. He makes his arrows shafts of fire. So in this passage, God is presented as preparing weapons that are violent and retributive. We have a God that is angry and a God that is ready to punish sin through violent imposition of his will. Hmm. But I just stopped in the middle of the passage. Let me just continue to read where I left off. Look at those who are in labor with wickedness, who conceive evil and give birth to a lie. They dig a pit and make it deep. And fall into the hole that they have made. Their malice turns back upon their own head. Their violence falls on their own scalp. Mm. So, at one point, the psalmist is saying, you know, if the wicked don't repent, God is preparing his weapons of vengeance. But then he says, well, yeah, or think of it this way people that continue to sin are digging a hole that they're going to fall into, they're digging a pit that they're going to fall into themselves Mm. their own violence returns upon their own scalp there is a there is a boomerang effect to Mm. sinful violence and other forms of sinful activity that tends to come back so so the wrath of god is a metaphor for the consequences of sin Mm. Uh, don't let anybody i don't want anybody to hear me saying oh it doesn't matter you can do whatever you want there's no consequences far from it i'm not saying anything like that What I'm saying is God isn't angry and he isn't retributive, but he has created a universe where there are consequences of sin. The fear of God is the wisdom that acknowledges that. Mm. The fear of God says, hmm, I recognize that this, this, this creation that I have been hurled into is not nihilistic. It's not without meaning. It comes from the God who says, I am love.'" And there is a grain to this universe, and mm. it is love. If I go with the if I go with love in the end, things work out. If I go against love, love of God, love of neighbor, eventually I will suffer because of it. Mm. So that kind of wisdom is what the Bible calls the fear of God. It's a place to begin, but it's mm. not a place to stay and end. Mm. Eventually, perfect love casts out all fear.
1: That's good. So the wrath of God then is not about God's. Retributive anger, but it's about the consequences of Yeah, and another way of, of saying
0: it might be that, that um, in the simplest way I could say this, I can mm. say this, the, the fear of God is where we begin to take God seriously. Mm. Where we don't go through life with a cavalier disregard for God. Mm. Um, the fear of God is to take God seriously. I, I was very fortunate to be raised by a a wonderful father. I know this isn't everybody's good fortune, but, Mm -hmm. but I did. And a wonderful man, wise, he was a judge and beloved in our community. And I couldn't have asked for a better father. Now, when I was a small child, did I fear him? Well, I, I, yeah, I suppose in the sense that, that I would not want to displease him. Mm -hmm. uh, In the sense that, any small child might recognize that their father is powerful, uh, recognizing that there is a deep, abiding respect. So I could, I could imagine myself having some concept of the fear of my father, but I never thought that my father would harm me. Mm. And so, yes, there's a place for the fear of God, where we begin to take God seriously, uh, where we understand that that. This is him with whom we have to do.
2: Hmm.
0: On the other hand, uh, if we are thinking that God is a potential source of our harm, I think that's an unhealthy way of thinking
1: about God. Hmm. Is that the same kind of fear that the prodigal son had when he came home to the father? Yeah, I think
2: the the
0: prodigal son you know, the prodigal son is certainly not the hero of this story. Hmm. The prodigal son comes home Because he has no other choice. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, everything has fallen apart. Yeah. And he doesn't, he's starving and it's his last option. And you know what? That's just fine with the father. The father doesn't care why he came, he came. Yeah. And so uh, we could go back for just a second here and touch on penal substitutionary atonement theory fallacy in that. (laughs) If Calvin and all the rest are correct, you have to have an ugly insertion into this most beautiful of parables. And it goes something like this. And when the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to the servants quarters where he beat the hell out of a slave and satisfied his wrath and then was able to welcome and forgive us. No, no, no.
2: We don't need
0: that ugly insertion. Yeah. Uh, What is the justice? How is justice satisfied in in the parable of the prodigal son? There's nobody gets paid. There's Mm. no repayment. Uh, That which was lost and squandered is lost and squandered. That's there's nothing to be done. It's gone. Mm. Uh, Justice for the father in the parable of the prodigal son is simply to have his son back. Mm. And of course, remember, this this parable isn't really about the younger son. The younger son is a is a significant character, but the parable of the prodigal son is really about the elder brother. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 15 because the Pharisees were looking disdainfully upon Jesus for welcoming sinners, be, befriending them and sharing meals with them. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus tells the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the best one of all, the lost son. And in the end, you end up with with the with the elder son, I, I'm going to say it this way, you end up with the elder son in the outer darkness, weeping, gnashing his teeth, filled with resentment, refusing to come to the party, and the father going out to him and pleading with him mm. to come and join the celebration that is the kingdom of heaven that's already underway, but we don't know how it ends, mm. because... Ultimately, how that story ends is up to the hearers, because Jesus is actually addressing the Pharisees who, in their self-righteousness, uh, were offended, scandalized that Jesus was welcoming sinners just freely, just, just freely. Just, just, <laughs> if you would eat with Jesus, Jesus would eat with you. If you were willing to sit at his table, Jesus would sit with you. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't any other requirement, and the Pharisees were offended by this. And so that's where the parable of the prodigal son comes from.
1: Mm. Now, just to pull out this idea of God's wrath a little bit more, um, God's wrath is about the consequences of our actions. Yeah. Take that a little further. Is that also what hell would be? Because that's another, obviously, we touched well, on a little see, bit earlier.
0: But... Now, this is an enormous subject. Yes, So a, a can of worms. This is an enormous <laughs> subject. Where to start? First of all, first of all, yeah. The first thing I want to say is what I have to say about hell. I said the best in the book, Sinners in the Hands of the Loving God, <laughs> Chapter 6, Hell yeah. and How to Get There. I don't yeah. think I can improve on that. Yeah. Uh, I can riff a little bit on it, but uh, he, there's a lot of problems. Here's one of the problems, is hell has become a catch-all word that is filled with assumed meanings that very often have nothing to do with the original text.
2: Hmm.
0: All right. So actually most modern translate, you pick up a modern English translation of the Bible. You won't find the word hell anywhere in the Bible. It's, it's not even in there. They're going to translate it Sheol in the old Testament. They're going to translate it Gehenna. Sometimes they'll translate it Gehenna or, or typically they'll, or they'll just, they'll just translate Hades as Hades. Um, what happened was, after these various um, passages that have various warnings, um, time goes by, centuries go by, mm-hmm. and hell takes on a life of its own, whether it's, whether it's Dante's Inferno or the Baptist Church Hell House. Hmm. or Hollywood movie, or something like that, cartoons. We get this idea that this is what hell means, that it has a single meaning. It's like a pit of fire with devils and pitchforks and torture chamber, and it goes on forever. And we read that back into the text. Hmm. First of all, in the Old Testament, there's virtually no theory of the afterlife. Uh, Only very, very late, very late, probably 150 years before Christ, you get some idea of resurrection. Prior to that, the Hebrew theology just did not speculate on afterlife, and it, it was a peculiar religion because of that. Uh, the pagan religions were all about the afterlife. I mean, that's 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 the whole point of those pagan religions. Ultimately, is to provide some sort of well-being in the afterlife. You know, and so the pharaohs are building their pyramids and all of that. Uh, the Jews are not like that. Their religion is very much grounded in this present world. And what about the afterlife? They don't have much of a concept of it. Hmm. In the New Testament, you do, you, I'll have people say to me, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. And I say, yeah, yeah
2: <laughs> yes,
0: but not the hell you're talking about. Right. What Jesus mostly was doing was warning Jerusalem of the impending disaster. That if they wouldn't listen to him and follow his way of peace, but continued to believe that God was with them in a violent revolution against the Romans, they were on a hell bound course. That would result in Jerusalem being pulled down into Gehenna, which is the valley just immediately south of Jerusalem, which was the garbage dump where the maggots were, you know, in the garbage and the fires that burned the garbage were kept going day and night. Mm. Jesus is warning Jerusalem, if you don't repent and rethink everything and follow in the way that I'm trying to teach you, eventually you're going to have your whole city pulled down into the smoldering garbage pit of Gehenna, i.e. hell, uh, where the fires aren't quenched and the worm dieth not. Mm. And it came to pass. And so... Jerusalem went to a literal hell. So sometimes people will challenge me, do you believe in a literal hell? I say, yes, I do. I don't think you do. Right? <laughs> uh, you're, you're talking about some sort of post-mortem spiritual hell mm. that I don't think we know very much about. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm mm. convinced of that. Um, But afterlife hell uh, is not near as present in Scripture as we think. Now, it is present. Jesus talks about it a couple of times, most famously, the rich man and Lazarus, which was an existing uh, folk tale, okay, that there are several different versions, but, you know, it's found in about seven different rabbinic sources about upon death, there's this there's this leper and there's this rich man and the rich, they have a dramatic reversal of fortunes hmm. in death. Um, that was a familiar, well-known folk tale. Jesus puts his own spin on it. When what Jesus does is have the rich man begging that uh, Lazarus be sent back from the dead to warn his five brothers. Well, this comes. This parable comes after. This is in, in, in Luke 16. It's in Luke 15 that Jesus has given the parable of the prodigal son.
2: Okay.
0: The, par- the parable of the prodigal son involves a, a boy coming back from the dead. Remember, that's, that's, how, that's how the father talks to the elder brother, with the Pharisees, sure. saying, this brother of yours was dead, yeah. and now
2: he's alive. Yeah.
0: And Jesus is saying, look, If you can't recognize, if you won't listen to the law and the prophets, even these people that are coming back from the dead, these tax collectors and sinners that are coming back from the dead and being welcomed in the kingdom of God, even that's not going to move you to repent. Hmm. And so... Jesus is not giving us an, a Boyer's view of hell in that parable. That's, it's not designed to satisfy curiosity about what the afterlife is like. What it's designed to do is to alert us to the Lazaruses that are all around us and remind us that there are consequences for not acting according to love. Mm. Uh, the other parable that, that has a lot of currency in our discussion of hell Is in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Mm. Now, the problem with that is, though, you'll have, you know, an evangelical Christian say, see, that's a literal hell, you know, they're going to be cast into hell. I said, okay, fine, but then read the passage very carefully. It's talking about the judgment of nations, Mm. and they're judged on the criterion of how did you treat the poor, the immigrant, the imprisoned, and the sick? Mm. Those are the four categories. How did you treat the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, the immigrant, um, the sheep are not sheep because they pray to the sinner's prayer. <laughs> and the goats are not goats because they had bad theology and, and didn't believe in PSA atonement theory. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, entire, the entire parable is saying there is consequences for how we treat other people. Now, I, this, I would suggest, and I can't remember if I do, I think I do this more in my book, A Farewell to Mars, than I do in this book. I would suggest that the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 isn't even about afterlife issues because mm. it doesn't say that. It says when the king comes in his glory, let's, let's read it exactly. Uh, Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory, that's how it starts out. Mm. Well, he, he, now, this is going to really blow your mind a little bit here. <laughs> uh, I confess that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Mm. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, I confess. Yeah. Uh, I don't think Jesus talked about a second coming. Mm. When Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming, he's not talking about a second coming. He's, in fact, remember, Jesus, when he's before Caiaphas in the late night trial at the Sanhedrin, Jesus says to Caiaphas... Referring out of Daniel 7, Daniel 7 has a vision of this parade of beasts that represent Gentile empires that bring human suffering. And finally at last there comes a son of man Hmm. who is a humane ruler, who is exalted to the right hand of the ancient of days and all authority over the nations is given to him. Uh, Jesus tells Caiaphas on the night of his uh, trial, he says, from now on, this is Jesus speaking to Caiaphas from now on, you will see the son of man standing at the right hand of the power Mm. and coming in the clouds of heaven.
1: It's not someday, but it's from
0: now on. Not, not 2000 years or 3000 years or whatever from, but right now. So Jesus, I think is talking not about what we would call a second coming. He's talking about, this is what happens now when, The son of man comes into his glory, which is through the cross and then and then vindication through resurrection, that it inserts into the world a new understanding of the victim. Mm. Um, More than ever before, you cannot long term abuse victims Mm. and get away with it so I'm um, use so Germany you know is complicit in one way or another. The nation of Germany is complicit one way or another, in the greatest humanitarian crime of history, the Holocaust, did they get away with it? Well, not that generation
2: hmm.
0: I mean, what happened? They went to hell, and the fires weren't quenched hmm. and their and their their nation was reduced to rubble um i I think this is part of what's going on and what Jesus is referred to. I don't think he's really talking about afterlife. I think he's talking about after Calvary, after the arrival of the kingdom of God through death and resurrection, presently in the world. There's a new order. There's a new morality that, uh, I'm not doing a very good job communicating this. I need to read what I wrote about it in farewell to Mars.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, you're doing a very good job. And I, I think the, the key there, like you said, is the you know the refocus or the, the focus on the on the victim.
0: Well, here's the thing. Um, in the book of Acts, there are about seven or eight sermons, eight or nine sermons, depending on what you count as a sermon. Mm. But you do have these accounts of apostles proclaiming the gospel in the first century Roman world in the book of Acts. And they never once make an appeal to afterlife issues. Mm. Unfortunately, the gospel has been reduced – distorted uh, to a a heaven and hell minimalism that goes basically like this. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could go to heaven and not hell when you die. So accept Jesus Christ into your heart so that when you die, you go to heaven and not hell. Now, you can make it more elaborate than that, but that's basically what's lurking behind most of evangelical gospel preaching today. That's the plot. Yeah, that's the plot. (laughs) And. That is not at all what they preach in the book of Acts. They never made appeals to afterlife issues. Their gospel was more like this. The world has a new emperor. Mm. A new, that's what's meant by Lord. The world has a new Lord who's, who is saving the world. Rethink everything. Be baptized. Join up with this king and his kingdom. Your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be a part of what God is doing to heal the world. Mm. That's their gospel. Uh, it wasn't afterlife oriented. They may have had some opinions about afterlife. They do, but they don't make it a part of their gospel proclamation. And um, it's really more on the periphery, mm. um, because even then, the ultimate hope is resurrection, not not escaping off to a kind of essentially platonic, non-temporal, non-material, non-spatial uh, afterlife of the perfect forms. Mm. Rather, the hope was was the jewish hope of
1: resurrection Mm. so um there's a sense of resurrection for all right resurrection for well, that's what jesus says yeah he said
0: he said that they will come and all who are in the grave will hear the voice of the son of god Mm. and will be raised and those that have done righteous to a resurrection life those who have done wickedness unto a resurrection of judgment Hmm. Not, 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 uh, and, and judgment. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. I mean, right. <laughs> I think we we'll, we'll, we all must be judged. Um, but I, I guess the thing I want to make most clear is we don't have to say that all non Christians end up in an eternal torture chamber. Hmm. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus never used the term wicked as a technical term for all non-Christians.
2: Mm.
0: He used the word wicked in a very pedestrian way. Jesus did not use the word wicked as a 16th century
2: uh,
0: European reformer. Right. <laughs> uh, Jesus used the word wicked as you and I would understand the word wicked.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, we somehow got the idea through, we painted ourselves into a corner mm. through various theological missteps. And, have, and so, so many people carry around the idea that all non-Christians are going to be tortured forever. So, you know, we, we condemn the horror of the Holocaust, but also think that Anne Frank is being tortured in hell by God now. Right. Uh, which is, there's no warrant for that in scripture whatsoever. I'll get pushed back and say, well, if that's, if that's so, if that's so, then what's the motive for preaching the gospel? And there you have it. You see that people have reduced the gospel to afterlife issues about heaven and hell. No, we preach the gospel because Jesus is Lord and God is presently saving the world for God's love love the world. You understand Mm. God is presently saving the world through the arrival of the kingdom of Christ, yeah. and we preach the gospel because Jesus is Lord. Now I'm a Christian. I'm an Orthodox Christian. I mean, I mean that small O. Although there's a good deal of big O <laughs> Orthodox theology in, in the way I think about things, but uh, I think I confess that all that is saved, all that is redeemed, is through the work of Christ. Mm. Um, but if someone says to me, so, so, so whatever it means to be saved, ultimately, even in the afterlife, I say, whatever is saved is, is the work of Christ. Mm. But then I hasten to add, who are you to tell Jesus who he can and can't save? That's right. Um, Mm. so yeah, this, this, this will produce way too many duns. Mm. Um. The idea that all non-Christians are tortured by God. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't teach anything remotely like that. And so we don't need to do that. I've had the experience more than once, believe it or not, more than once. But one in particular that stands out in my mind of a a young college student uh, visiting for the first time Auschwitz. And she'd grown up in our church. And she's visiting Auschwitz, and she had a crisis of faith. And she thought, well, do I have to believe now that every single person that went in those gas chambers, because they were Jewish and not Christian, went from Hitler's gas chamber and Hitler's ovens to the ovens and fires of Jehovah for eternity? Mm. And it turns out, I've, I've read on this, this is, a, this is a fairly common phenomenon mm. that, that this, this, you know, um, Infernal theology that all that, don't, that aren't Christians are tortured by God forever. Young people that ha, have grown up with that and they, they carry that to Auschwitz. It often produces a crisis of faith. She got back from Germany. She came to see me and I was able to walk her through that and said, no, you don't have to believe that. Mm. Uh, that isn't historic Christian theology. It's not biblical theology. You don't have to believe that. And it, and it saved her faith for her yeah uh, I can tell you she was she was not going to be a Christian if she was required to believe that mm. and I remember this is how meaningful it was for her then several years, maybe many years later, I officiated her wedding, and you know it's her wedding day, and um you can only imagine you know all that you would have to attend to on your wedding day but Shortly before the ceremony, she took me aside and said, I want to thank you for what you did so many years ago in saving my Christian faith and explaining to me that not all non-Christians end up tortured forever in some sort of fiery torture chamber. Hmm. She said, that's why I'm still a Christian today. And so she was even thinking about that on her wedding day. I think that's
2: a lovely story.
1: Yeah. I and mean, I think that's the reason why a lot of people walk away from the Christian faith. It's because they have that understanding of God or they think that's the way that God is. And they're like, I can't believe in a God like that.
0: Right, I mean, most people don't know anybody that cruel and petty. Sure, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, I mean, if if (laughs) if, yeah, I mean, most of us really actually don't know anybody that bad. (laughs) Definitely not. Um, And if we do, we we hope that they're incarcerated somewhere because they're a profound
1: danger. Yeah, they should be locked up. Right. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, I mean, God is not a monster. No, and I think one of the beautiful things you said in your book, I think it was actually a chapter title, is that you know, Jesus is what God has to say. Yeah. And I think Amen. that right when we, I don't know, I just like, I, I've, I've been wrestling with this topic like for, for quite a while and I've been more vocal about it recently, but just reading the gospels and, and looking at the life of Jesus and looking even at the, like the theme of the table in his ministry and just, you know, mm-hmm. what that represented and how he opened himself up to Everyone almost made the the table its own character in the story Mm -hmm. where it just kind of welcomes everybody in. And like when you look at the theologies of of hell and the doctrines of hell through that lens, like you're just there has to be a disconnect. There has to be like a different way to think of it. So,
0: yeah, I I, the the, hell is the love of God wrongly received. Mm. God has a single disposition toward all human beings. And it's one of unending, everlasting, unconditional, unchangeable love. There Mm. flows from the heart of God, a river of pure love that is like fire. It's a river of fire. Mm. When we receive, if we receive God's love with love, then it becomes a source of warmth and comfort and light and healing. If we resist, if we say, I will not go the way of God's love, and we resist love then that's when the love of God becomes for us a kind of torment. Mm. But God hasn't changed his disposition towards us. Sure, I think hell in one mysterious sense could be the love of God wrongly received. Mm. Um, maybe some of our listeners might want to read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, mm. which is a, a theological thought experiment. And done in the form of a entertaining novel, and it be the Great Divorce is about a group of people in hell, and he describes hell in a certain way, and it's it's uh it's kind of a dreary town where you can do whatever you want. Hmm. Uh, there's no particular torture. Uh, but people just can't get along. And so they end up moving further and further and further and further. You can pretty much have whatever you want, but nobody's happy.
2: Mm.
0: And uh, it's this dreary kind of late winter, not never spring sort of place. And there's there's arranged for them a bus trip to heaven. Mm. And uh, most aren't interested at all. But, uh, but some say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take this bus trip to heaven. And so they get on board and they go to heaven and they meet all kinds of people and all kinds of things happen. You can read the book, but um, in the end, most of them choose to get back on the bus and go back to hell. Hmm. Uh, Very few choose to stay in heaven. And if they choose to stay in heaven, they have to face who they are and what they've done. And they have to humble themselves Hmm. and ask for the mercy of God. What I'm absolutely convinced about, Glenn, I'm convinced of this, that no one ever sincerely asks for the mercy of God and is refused.
2: Mm.
0: Now, it remains an open question to can you forever ask for the mercy of God? Can you so damage your soul that you're incapable of asking for the mercy of God? I don't know. Mm. Um, I'm also convinced because I believe radically in in, in freedom. Uh, I think I mean, as part of being created in the image of God is radical freedom, that at any given moment, anyone can refuse the love of God. Mm and hold on to pride and refuse to ask for mercy. So in that sense, uh, hell, how, however we understand it, is potentially eternal. But I also believe that no one ever, ever calls upon the mercy of God and God says, eh, too late now, pal. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's, that's not the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And here's, I'm just going to say it right now so I don't miss out on it. My favorite line in the book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, is this. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do.
2: Hmm.
1: It's so good. Man, I have so many things I want to ask you, but uh, I think that this is probably a good spot for us. I to just end. gave you my best yeah. line there to end with. So That is so good. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on um, and talking to thank me. Thank you, Glenn. I enjoyed it. I, I felt like I just kind of,
0: you you asked me about two questions oh, that I get really excited about, and fine. I just went.
2: So.
1: <laughs> and I was here like biting my tongue. I'm like, nope, don't say anything. Just let the man go. Let the man go. <laughs> well, thank you so much. No, hey, I don't know
0: if I should have done that, but you did ask me the questions that I
1: get excited about. Nah, th- thank you so much. And before you go, do you have any place they'd like to point our listeners to where they can go and find you? I'm um, online, and I'm easy to
0: find, you know, because I have an unusual name. Yes, <laughs> Brian Zahn, Z A H N D, and you know, I have a place where I blog. I'm on, I'm active on Twitter, where I'm a bit of a provocateur. <laughs> Facebook, <like> Instagram, <laughs> I'm a bit nicer, although not always. Um, but I'm, I'm easy to find because, as far as I can tell, I'm the only Brian Zahn out there.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you, Brian. You have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll have you back on soon. God bless you, Glenn. Thanks, bud. You too. People. was that not an amazing conversation oh man I came away with so much uh, I'm gonna listen to this episode probably multiple times because he said so many things I was trying to take notes uh, and then finally I just put my pencil down on my pen and I'm like you know what I'm just gonna listen because this is just a lot of good stuff That I've got to chew on. But one of the things I really appreciated about this episode, and if you're in a place kind of like I am, where you're in that phase of you're taking some things apart in your faith, you're rethinking some things, but yet you're piecing things back together at the same time, a lot of the stuff he talked about, especially concerning like the cross and hell and understanding why Jesus died, all that kind of stuff, really kind of put words. On things I've been feeling and sensing for a long time, but couldn't really quite figure out how to put it into uh, words. Couldn't really try to figure out how to describe it verbally. And I really feel like he helped me do that. And his book really helps you do that on a whole nother level as well. So uh, go pick up that book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever it is that you buy your books. Um, It is there. Uh, Great read, quick read easy read. Uh, You will highlight to your heart's content in that book, and uh, you will come away with a lot of good stuff. So anyway, all of that to say, uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for dropping by. Uh, This is episode number 35, uh, almost to 40. We're five, halfway to 40. I I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, but hey, thank you for dropping by. It was awesome to have you here, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.